0: We'll turn this morning, if you would, again to Hebrews chapter 4. uh, Hebrews chapter 4. And then verses 6 and 7. Hebrews chapter 4 and verses 6 and 7. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, And those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. He again fixes a a certain day today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as he has been, excuse me, just as has been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And let us pray. Fathers, we transition our thinking into this particular section of Holy Scripture, I, I do pray these moments for the the help of your Holy Spirit to communicate holy truth in a way that is honoring to a God that is holy and glorious and mighty. And I pray for the, the help of your Spirit to convey your word also in a way that is of great assistance of a help to our hearts and minds in our our thinking about the glory of salvation our our thinking about the being of god and so i I pray the time would be profitable and it might even serve serve as a very precious preparation for the observing of the lord's table and contemplating what your son has done for us on the cross so we just commit this time To Thee, And we we pray that you would continue to be exalted and glorified in our midst. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last Lord's Day, I I made the point that um, the repetition of the word rest, uh, both the noun form and the verb form in Hebrews chapter 4 and verses 1 through 11, uh, helps us to understand something of the theme. Uh, There's very high concentration of that word in, in those verses and so um, more narrowly, the theme, I think a helpful way of understanding this section would be the crucial importance of entering God's rest, the, the crucial importance of entering God's rest, which is of utmost importance, because although it did have reference to the Israelites, to the land of Canaan in, in the Old Testament, uh, its ultimate fulfillment Um, is entrance into the heavenly country, entrance into the heavenly Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth. And the great concern of our our soul, therefore, it's not just knowing about this rest, but actually entering into this rest. And and this note is clearly sounded and repeated in chapter 4. Again, I would draw your attention to verse 1. Therefore, let us fear while a promise remains of entering his rest. Uh, Any one of you may seem to come short of it. Then verse 6, we have read. Then verse 10, For the one who has entered his rest has himself rested from his works as God did from his. Then verse 11, Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. So this is the preeminent concern of the soul, to enter God's rest, and it's the great hope, the great concern that we have for others as well. And last Lord's Day, I looked at uh, some factors that govern our understanding of this concept, and one of those was the the necessary presence and exercise of faith to enter that rest. Verse 3, "...for we who have believed enter that rest." And kind of a negative corollary to that. Secondly, the absence of faith excludes from that rest. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And then we noted the ongoing opportunity of entering that rest. And especially as you move from verse 3 to verse 4, second part of verse 3 and into verse 4, it makes the point that this rest has been available since God completed his six days of creation. He rested on the seventh day. So this, this morning in the nature of the case, it's something like this same subject continued entering God's rest will kind of be the overriding um, our overriding theme this morning. So we'll note at least three further considerations relating to this this rest that remains for the people of God. And and the first one is simply to note that not all people will enter this rest. Not all people, unfortunately, will enter this rest. We've noted there is an initial entrance into it, and that is when one is converted. And the the, the sort of proof text that I have cited that uh, makes sense to me in this connection is Matthew chapter 11, "'Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest.'" Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. You shall find rest for your souls, for my my yoke is easy and my burden is light." So it's not just rest for a moment, but it's entrance into a life where there's continued access to rest and the things that are associated with that, a kind of rest of soul that the world knows nothing about. An example would be Philippians 4, 6, and 7. These are words that that one who has entered into God's rest can apply and know. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, Or surpasses all understanding, shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now, verse 6 begins with the words, therefore, since it remains. For some to enter it. The it here is God's rest. And the idea is since the rest which began after God completed his work of creation, since that rest is still in force, it remains that there is still an opportunity for some to enter that rest. As William Lane put it, the divine promise of rest indicates that God provided rest not only for himself, but also for his people. In this connection, under this heading, I would offer two further observations. First, the fact that some would enter his rest... in in the flow of, uh, in the context, they're kind of in the flow of thought. The fact that some would enter his rest is given greater force because it is in contrast to verse 5. Verse 5 says they shall not enter my rest. It's referring to the practice of the wilderness generation that led to this decision on God's part. And just to kind of refresh your memory, this is found in Psalm chapter 95 and verse 8 and following. Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Masa in the wilderness. When your fathers tested me, they tried me, though They had seen my work. For forty years I loathe that generation, and said they are a people who err in their heart, and they do not know my ways. Therefore I swore in my anger truly they shall not enter my rest. And that's elaborated on in Hebrews chapter three and verse sixteen. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they should not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? And then it's touched on, in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 2, for indeed we have had good news preached to us just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. So the fact that some would not enter his rest is given greater force because it's in contrast to those who would not enter his rest. Secondly, I would have you notice that this promise remains valid. Uh, The fact that they did not enter his rest does not nullify the validity of the promise for those who have faith and for those who are obedient. William Lane said God's promise nevertheless remains valid and directs attention to another group who will uh, enter his rest. Uh, This is a great encouragement, I think, to our hearts as we speak to others about their soul, and it's true, I know we've made this point before, that that most don't trust Christ as Savior, and it's true, most remain on the broad road that leads to destruction, most are in that that category that reject overtures of of grace, but that doesn't nullify the validity of the promise. Um, Their disobedience or their mockery of the truth has no bearing on the validity of the promise for those who do believe. So others will enter this rest, and Psalm 95 verses 7 and 8 contemplates this when it says, today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your heart. So most do harden their hearts, most do resist invitations to eternal life, most give no attention to the eternal condition of their soul, but that has no effect on the validity of the promise to those who would come to faith in Christ and put their trust in him. So, kind of a little bit of a summary statement under this heading, not all will avail their souls of this benefit. The words, it remains for some to enter it, infers what we know to be true, that not all will enter his rest. Some will, but not all will. Um, This is a sad reality to consider. Not all who hear the gospel will respond positively to it. You and I would would like that to be true, that everyone who hears the gospel does respond positively to it. So at least as I was going through this, I was thinking one right way to respond to this reality. I I believe that not all who hear the gospel positively respond to it. I, I think one right response is to mourn for their souls. Jesus said, blessed are they that mourn for they shall be comforted Um, and and we're Christians we're human beings we're like other people we we mourn for a loved one that dies but we're also radically different than unsaved people you and I believe what does it profit a man if he gains his whole world and loses his own soul I mean you and I believe today you shall be with me in paradise there really is a paradise Jesus said so but we also believe what Jesus said about the eternal torment of an unrepentant man in hell and I, I, I think the right response to this that there's no greater loss than the soul, and, and it's good to be like Jesus. It's good to be like Paul. It's good to be like Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. And at least at times, at least to some degree, this reality I think should cause mourning for our souls. People that are consistently resistant to the eternal truth that would usher them into eternal life. Well, <clears throat> excuse me. Secondly, the, the failure of some. The failure of some to enter God's rest, therefore, it's no mandate or reason to stop preaching the good news. The failure of some to enter God's rest, that's no encouragement to stop preaching or conveying the good news. Verse six goes on. Those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. The logic here is somewhat similar to verse 2. The word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. I want to look at at these words in reverse order. And I would have you notice, first of all, that the good news failed to have its desired effect because of disobedience. Uh, it's, It's like the good news hit a roadblock, and it's a powerful roadblock. It's disobedience. That's why it did not have its desired effect. In verse 2, the reason for the failure of the good news was unbelief. And here it's ascribed to disobedience, um, and especially disobedience to God. The idea, of, it, it connotes rebellion against a legitimate authority. Now, there are instances in the scriptures where disobedience to human authority is presented as a legitimate and a right thing to do. Uh, Acts 5.29 might come to our minds. We must, Peter says we must obey God rather than men. Or the Hebrew midwives in the book of Exodus, because they feared God, they would not put the male infants to death, even to death, even though that was the command of the king. And other examples may come to your mind. But here, uh, disobedience to God is in view—a uh, 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 disobedience to His commands. So, also, also this is a, a manifestation. It helps us to understand. The, the condition and the dilemma of unsaved man. That is, disobedience helps us to understand the condition of the unsaved man that we are dealing with. Just to remind you of what is said in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. Of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. That's the designation of the unsaved, the sons of disobedience. Among them, too, among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So th- this is the definition of the unsaved man. The, the very inclination is to violate the dictates of an infinitely holy God. Um, and this. Uh, includes and also describes the condition not of just a few, but every unsaved person. You'll notice that the Apostle Paul, he he includes himself in this group before conversion. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of the flesh. And then Ephesians chapter 5 and just a a few other verses help us to understand the kind of a, a moral behavior that is consistent with being a son or a daughter of disobedience. Ephesians 5.3 says, Do not let immorality or any impurity or greed even be named among you as is proper among saints. There there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which is not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience." In other words, what sort of people are characterized by filthy talk, uh, excuse me, silly talk, coarse jesting uh, that is not fitting, immorality, impurity, covetousness, and idolatry? The answer is sons of disobedience. It's consistent with, with that frame of mind. It's this condition and this innate tendency to sort of flout the commands and the dictates of the moral governor of the universe. This is what helps us to see why the unsaved, why the disobedient, are also children of wrath. It helps us to understand why it is they are the object of God's wrath. Here's a text that you probably know, John 3.36, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son, he does not obey the Son, does not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So it helps us to see the dilemma of the unsaved man And in John 3.36 especially is perceptive in, in bringing out the sad case of the unsaved person. He doesn't believe the good news of the gospel. He doesn't mingle faith with the truth. He Therefore, he doesn't see life. He doesn't have everlasting life. He doesn't have abundant life. Um, the, the only thing that's everlasting about him if he doesn't repent will be eternal destruction, experiencing the Eternal wrath of God, um, and so this is the plight of the unsaved man. He, he gives no thought to the world to come. He gives no thought to having to face the God of the Bible as his judge. So we see here that the good news had no effect because of disobedience. That was the impediment to it reaching into the soul. But secondly. This negative response to the good news, that's no mandate to refrain from preaching the gospel. That's no encouragement to stop from communicating the gospel. The first part of the text is, and those who had good news preached to them. That's the wilderness, wilderness generation we read about in Psalm 95. The verb good news preach is especially used of the divine message of salvation or the messianic proclamation of the gospel. And I know recently I, I made the point that... Um, Hearing the good news is no guarantee of salvation. But that does not mean that the gospel is still, is not the power of God unto salvation it's still right to share the good news because it is the means let me give you some reasons here it's the means that god has ordained for the salvation of lost souls in in first and second timothy paul writes about the gospel to his son in the faith and his great emphasis don't alter the message don't mess the, don't mess with the message then you change the effects that it will have rather do be prepared to suffer for the gospel He says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel, according to the power of God, who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The gospel brings life and immortality to light, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. Secondly, there's a comfort of soul in knowing that the good news is being advanced and proclaimed. There's a comfort of the soul in knowing that the good news of the gospel is being communicated. It's interesting to read how our Lord responded to the news of John the Baptist in prison, and, and at least my understanding of this particular text is, well, Jesus was thinking, what's going to encourage him? He's in jail, he's in prison, what's going to encourage him? So we read in Matthew 11, and it came about that when Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John in prison heard the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the expected one or shall we look for someone else? Jesus answered and said to them, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. And the poor have the gospel preached to them. So in our Lord's mind, what's going to encourage John the Baptist in jail, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Whether they repent or not is in God's hands, but the poor have the truth conveyed to their souls. This is like Paul in prison when he writes to the Philippians, some to be sure are preaching Christ, even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The, the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, rather than from pure motives, thanks, thinking to cause me to distress in my imprisonment. There's a part of me that never never really understand that. I'm going to go preach the gospel to make Paul upset while he's in prison, but nevertheless What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice, and I will rejoice. Motives are important, but Paul is encouraged just that the truth of the gospel is going out, just that it is being conveyed. And the gospel is the means that God has ordained for the salvation of souls, and it's comforting and peace-producing just to know that the truth of the gospel is going out. Many years ago, I, I, I shared kind of the, the basic elements of the gospel with a, a, a family member that was pretty close to, to passing away. And um, I still remember it was like it was yesterday, but just leaving the hospital. And I just had, I had a peace come over my soul. And I don't know whether, I don't know what happened, but I, I, I think it's because I just got the truth out there. And, and there's peace about, it's, it's there. And now it's in God's hand. I can't do any more than that, but I can do that. And that's the idea. here. It's peace producing to know somebody's heard it. Now it's in God's hands, but at least you've done what you can. At least I've done what I can to get the truth out there. It's peace producing. And then it engenders hope that because we never know how somebody's going to respond. It engenders hope in our soul. We, we never know what the effect is going to be. I, I know one, I don't know much about fishing, but I know two things. If you stay home, you catch nothing. But if you go to the lake at least you got I mean with your boat and your pole and the right bait all that at least you got a chance of catching something if you stay home you're not going to get anything but you never know how somebody's going to respond to the gospel Paul concluding his message in Mars Hill. At Mars Hill wrote, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent, because he is fixed today, in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Well, how did they respond to that? Now, when they heard this, they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. But others said, we'll hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed. So you got the same message, same people, at the same time, same place. Some mocked and sneered. Others were ambivalent, we'll hear you again. But they, some believed. So you never know what kind of response there will be to the gospel. So the failure of some to enter God's rest through disobedience, that's no mandate, that's no incentive to stop preaching, stop communicating, stop publishing, stop advancing the the good news of the gospel. It's the means that God has ordained for the salvation of lost souls. Well, then thirdly, a great help in entering God's rest, and this is, a, this is in terms of the persevering in the faith, is um, embracing the significance of the term today. And this is found in verse 7. Um, it says, He again fixes a certain day, today, saying, Through David, After so long a time, just as he said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And by by perseverance, I'm I'm talking about what we find in verse 11. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through, uh, through following the same example of disobedience. And as I indicated, I know a few weeks ago, my understanding of God's rest, it can be understood like salvation, you are saved. You're being saved. You will be saved. There's, a, there's an entrance into God's rest, a conversion. There's an experience of God's rest as we walk with the Lord. And in the future, there will be an entering into the new heavens and, and the, the new earth. So as you move from verse 6 to verse 7, as William Lane points out, there's a shift in focus to another factor to be considered by the readers. The writer seizes upon the term today as having fundamental significance for a deeper understanding of the concept of rest. The phrase he fixes a certain day prepares for this phrase today if you hear his voice do not harden your heart Um, that this suggests that there's a day subsequent to the wilderness generation it's a quote from psalm chapter 95 and verse 7 but the today still remains in effect it's still applicable to us As one put it, God's word in David, which would be a reference to Psalm 95, God's word in David remains effective long after it was uttered, for it addresses the heart and conscience of listeners in the Christian era. In terms of duration, I think Philip Hughes is very helpful. He's commenting on Hebrews 3.13, "...encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin." He writes, "...as long as it is called today, that is, as long as the present day of God's grace endures, an allusion to the quotation from Psalm 95.7 under Moses that lasted for 40 years in the wilderness, and so long as it lasted, the opportunity persisted for the people to heed God's voice and obey his will. As with them, however, the day of divine forbearance will not last forever. It will be succeeded by another day of judgment for those who have spurned the day of grace." So um, the new factor at least brings out two things. Number one is urgency. It's a word, therefore, that must be not only heard, but heeded. That is, today, if you hear his voice, that there's an urgency that is connected with it. And secondly, it's applicable to us, especially as it relates to our ongoing relationship with the Lord, persevering in the the faith, as I noted in verse 11 of chapter 4, persevering to ultimately enter his rest. Now, today, the way that we hear his voice is through Holy Scripture. It's it's the means that 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 God has provided for us today. It's not somebody just listening for God's voice in the wind. It's not what some self-appointed prophet said, well, I heard God's voice. The the, the place that we hear God's voice today, it's in Holy Scripture. This is how you hear his voice. And I want to conclude here, or make a transition here by uh, four helps. This is from John Owen and his work on Hebrews that I thought were of great assistance. That's the way we hear his voice today. How do we... How do we hear it to benefit? And here Owen, I thought, was very helpful. So four helps from John Owen. Number one, in reading and hearing the scriptures, we ought to consider God speaking in it and by it unto us. So he's saying, when you're reading this, this is God speaking to my soul. That's how we should think. This alone, he says, will give us that reverence and subjection of soul and conscience unto the word of God, which are required of us and which are necessary that we have benefit and advantage thereby. The text that Brother Mark quoted this morning is right is connects with this, thus saith the Lord, Isaiah 66, 1, The heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Where is a house that you may build into me? And where is the place of my rest? For all these things to have... Hath mine hand made, and all those things have been, saith the Lord. But to this man will I look, even to him who is poor and contrite of spirit, and who trembles at my word. To this one will I look, who is poor and contrite of spirit, and has this kind of attitude, this kind of disposition, who trembles at my word. Owen says, Let a man "...but consider it is God, the great and holy one, that speaks to him in his word. And it cannot but excite in him faith, attention, and readiness unto obedience, as also work in him that awe, reverence, and trembling which God delights in and which brings the mind into a profiting frame." Secondly, uh, divine inspiration or the authority of God speaking in and by the penman, the writers of scripture, is the ground and foundation of our faith, that which gives them authority over our consciences and efficacy in them. In in other words, if we ask the question, how do I know that God speaks in his word, the answer is, it's inspired by God. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. He's the divine author. Thirdly, the Holy Scripture is an inexhaustible treasury and repository of spiritual mysteries and sacred truths. Fourthly, a peculiarly humble frame of spirit which is teachable. And lastly, to benefit from the word, this is how God speaks to us today, earnest prayer for guidance direction, assistance, and illumination of the Holy Ghost to enable us to find out, discern, and understand the deep things of God. So he's saying you come to Holy Scripture and you pray for the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit to perceive it, to understand it, and apply it correctly. Psalm 119.18, open mine eyes that I may behold wonderful things from thy law. Well, let us uh, pray, shall we? Father, we do thank you for your holy word, and we thank you for the provision that you continue to make for our souls. You haven't left us um, to ourselves. You have given us clear, holy teaching, and I I pray these these considerations would be of benefit to each one of our hearts as we consider our relationship with this, this precious word that we have such access to, and I pray deliver us from just thinking of it as routine, but cause us to be thankful that we have the holy Bible and we have it to read and to contemplate and to study so I, I pray it would be helpful to each one of us as we consider how to how to approach it in a way that would bring honor to thee and would be of great benefit to our own souls and Father, as we make a transition to think in terms of um, what you have done, the provision that you have made for our reconciliation to thyself, especially the death and the suffering of your son on the cross. I, I pray that it would be honoring to thee, it would be pleasing to thee, and it would be um, elevating to our hearts and souls as we consider what you have done to affect our conversion and to affect our reconciliation to you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.